Let's pray. Father, we just uh, we do worship you and praise you this morning. We thank you for uh, your endless grace that you continue to pour down upon us. We thank you for the unmerited favor that you've shown each of us, that you've uh, rescued us from the pit of hell, and you've set our feet on firm ground, and you promise to never leave us nor forsake us. What an amazing promise, Lord, that, that you love us and that you loved us to the point of shedding your blood for us. And God, I just pray that you would be with us this morning. God, that you would just use me in any way you choose. God, I pray that you would, things that I plan to say that aren't appropriate or are in the flesh and not in the spirit, I pray that you would take those away. And the things, Lord, that you haven't put on my heart yet, I pray that you would, Lord, for the edification of the body. So we love you and we commit this time to you. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God says that His grace is sufficient and His strength is perfected in our weakness. Amen. So I need a dose of His strength this morning. What a week it's been. It's been a great week. It's been a, a week of new birth, seeing the baby, Isaac. It's been a week of sorrow. Is, uh, we know of some folks that uh, their six-year-old son was badly hurt. A dear friend of mine, his uh, grandfather died. And uh, just a reminder that the Lord is in, is in control. He gives life and He takes away. All of our days are numbered. And it, to me, it's just motivation to want to live for Him in a more passionate and intimate way and really maximize my vapor. As you know, we've been going through the uh, second book of Corinthians, Second uh, Corinthians, and we just started chapter 10 two weeks ago. And I'm just going to give you a quick review of where we've been and, and maybe where we're, where we're headed. The first nine chapters of 2 Corinthians were really instructive to the church in Corinth. It was really to teach them and to implore them to live righteously, to live for the Lord and put aside their sin. The last four chapters of this book, chapters 10 through 13, Paul takes a noticeably different tone. And he takes really more of a, of a militant tone where he's ticked off. He got word while he was in Ephesus. Paul was in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And he got word that there were false teachers in Corinth. And uh, so he wrote these last four chapters to them, last four chapters of the letter, basically telling the rebels, the false teachers, to get out of the church that he so passionately started or repent. Now, Paul spent 20 months of his life planting this church. The Lord used him to start this church in Corinth. And to reach many people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Corinthian church was just kind of a, he loved them so much, but they were kind of a thorn in his side continually. There was always something going on. And now he gets words that there's rebels there. There's false teachers. There's Judaizers that are trying to defame Paul, trying to discredit his apostleship, and they're trying to divide the church. So that's where we're at in chapter 10. As we looked at the first two verses two weeks ago, Paul urged the rebels by the meekness and gentleness of Christ to repent or leave. And I really appreciate the way the Lord wired Paul because Paul, the, the Judaizers, the rebels really saw Paul as a, as a weak, as kind of a wimp. And they saw that because Paul really was meek and he was gentle. He was patient. But he was no wimp. Paul could pull the trigger when the trigger needed to be pulled. And that's really what he was doing in the first two verses, is he was urging them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ to leave or repent. But when he arrives on the scene, he tells them things better change. 
Then we saw last week in verses 3 through 6, we examined the spiritual weapons that Paul used and that were to use as believers to destroy fortresses of wrong thinking of both unbelievers and believers. So last week we looked at the weapons, the spiritual weapons to destroy fortresses. And those weapons were scripture, Christ-like love, and fervent prayer. Those are our weapons, folks, to make an impact on this world. What Paul shows us in the first uh, six verses is that arguing and threatening is fruitless. We're never going to argue or persuade or threaten somebody into the kingdom. The only way we're going to do it is by using God's word, praying, and approaching them with love, and letting the Lord do his work, which is removing the scales from the eyes. Because it's not our job to save. It's our job to administer scripture, to pray, and to love people. So that's what we learned last week. I do want to clarify something. Last week we talked a lot about loving the world. We used a verse in 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul says, stay away from immoral, covetous, adulterous people. And then he said, but I don't mean the people of the world. He's talking about the believers. And then I talked about how we need to love people that are lost, that are sinners, that have not yet bent their knee to Christ. We need to love them. It doesn't matter if it's the the abortionist doctor. It doesn't matter if it's you know the gang member, uh, the child molester. And then I mentioned uh, Oprah, Oprah Winfrey. And here's where I need to clear up. Because I, th- I came with some strength when I talked about Oprah. And I want to love Oprah. I respect her immensely. I want to pray for her. I'd like you to pray for her. But where, where the tension comes in my heart is when somebody professes to be a Christian. Yet they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They deny that Jesus is the only way. So that ruffles my feathers. Say, so don't, don't misconstrue it with me. I mean, can you imagine if these two million people that are meeting in the church of Oprah on Monday night, if one night she shows up and she says, I just want to tell you that I was, I was just kidding because the Lord removed the scales from my eyes and I want to profess Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven. Wouldn't that be cool? This brings us to our text today where Paul defends his apostleship. And by him defending his apostleship, we learn how to identify false teachers. And more importantly, how to identify the marks of genuine spiritual authority. So as we're going to look at this, Paul is actually defending his apostleship. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 7 through 11. If you don't have your own Bible... With you today, there's Pew Bibles, and it's on page 144 of the Pew Bible. This, folks, is a rich text for the instruction of believers today. I am so surprised, quite honestly, with, with chapter 10. We were talking as pastors, thinking that we were going to blow through these last four chapters in about five or six weeks. We may be there all summer. I mean, it is, it is so rich and so deep. And I was talking with Dino, and he's kind of finding the same thing out. It's like, my goodness, this is fun, isn't it? It's a lot of fun. So this is a rich text for instruction of believers today, a day when Christianity is a wash in the flood of lying and deceiving teachers. There are some who deny the resurrection. They deny the New Testament. They deny the authenticity of Scripture. They deny the deity of Christ. And they call themselves Christian teachers and leaders. And that's just part of it. There's all kinds of other ones. 
Some of them you see on television, and they pervert the gospel. They twist it, and they, they misrepresent the Lord and His work. And that kind of ticks me off. So the question before us is as important as it was before the, uh, for the Corinthian church. How can you tell a true messenger of Christ? Isn't that an important question today? There are, with, the, with, with television and all the books and the radio and the internet, I mean, how do you know what to read? How do you know what to listen to? Because there's all kinds of people that sound like they have a good message. How do you learn to identify a, identify a counterfeit currency or a counterfeit piece of art? You've got to know the real one, don't you? In order for somebody to know a counterfeit bill, you need to know what the real one looks like. Otherwise, you'll never be able to identify it. Same with a piece of art. In order to know an original Monet or a counterfeit Monet, you need to know the different characteristics of the original. Does that make sense? Let's read together 2 Corinthians 10, verses 7 through 12. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I shall not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as, I would, as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. Before we can look at the genuine marks of spiritual authority, we need to take a look at false credentials. False marks or false credentials. The first part of verse 7, Paul says to the church that you're looking at things as they are outwardly. Of course we're going to be deceived if we're looking at things as they are outwardly. Remember, some of the believers in Corinth are being swayed by the eloquent speech, credentials, and outward appearance of the false teachers. Paul encouraged them to look deeper and and actually examine the fruit of their so-called ministry. Paul says the problem with the Corinthian believers is that they're looking at things superficially. They're just looking at the surface. Folks, position, personality, and power are not evidence of genuine spiritual authority. doesn't matter how many times a day somebody's on TV or how often they're on the radio or how many books they've published. It doesn't matter. It's not, it is not a mark of true spiritual authority. It doesn't mean that because somebody publishes a lot of books, if they're not an authority, they may be. Have you ever listened to someone speak powerfully and forcefully only to leave and not have any idea what they said? Nancy and I were listening to a broadcast, one of Oprah's broadcasts, actually two of her broadcasts a few weeks ago. And we listened to it and we went, what did he say? You know, people are coming on going, this is, this is life changing. And there's some good stuff in there, I think. But we, didn't, we couldn't figure out what they, what they said. There's a saying, remember the old Wendy's commercial? Remember the little old lady, she was four foot nothing? Where's the beef? Where's the beef? That's the question we should always ask. Where's he at? And it, it shouldn't be whether it be whoever's at this pulpit 
or whatever pulpit. Yeah, we've got we've got to improve our oratory skills. You know, hopefully someday I'll grow in my charisma. But the important thing is, is where's the beef? What is it that the teacher is saying that is making you want to go deeper and love the Lord Jesus Christ in a more intimate way? Where's the beef? Friends, false teachers are more prevalent today than, than ever. With the advent and proliferation of technologies, this, these heretics are just a click of a mouse, a turn of a channel, a turn of a station away. And quite frankly, we find them on Christian television. We find them in Christian bookstores. It's important that, we're, that we be on our guard, folks. We've got to be on our guard, discerning what it is that we let into our, our ears and our eyes. And men into our homes. In Romans sixteen seventeen through 18, Paul says this. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. And turn away from them. For such men's, men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the what? Of the unsuspecting. So we've got to be on our guard. First Timothy 4.1, Paul says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Well, how many of us know, you don't need to raise your hands, people that have got caught up in the health and wealth movement? Health and wealth movement, health and prosperity, name it and claim it. Okay? There are false doctrines. I don't, we are in the last times. I don't know if we're in the last two hours of the last time or the last 200 years, but we're in the last times. And false teachers are gonna, are gonna come up like, that's gonna make your head spin. So we've gotta be discerning and we've gotta run everything. We've gotta test everything through the Word of God. 2 Peter 3.3, 3, Know first of all that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Some of these folks will profess to be Christians. I was listening to a... Uh, I'm kind of a researcher. As some have told me, I'm not much of a techie guy, but I'm a researcher. And I had heard that there was a very famous theologian that was on uh, the Hour of Power, which I can't think of that guy's name. Dr. Robert Schuler, right. And I don't really know much about his ministry. My, my gut tells me that there's some stuff that's not very solid there, quite frankly. But I heard on there, when I, was, when I was listening to this, there was a man from Salt Lake City that was giving his testimony on there. And this is one of the most powerful testimonies I've ever heard about the life-saving grace of Jesus Christ and how Jesus died for our sins. And put our feet on firm ground. All past, present, future sin. And this man was a a U.S. senator from Salt Lake City. His name was Orrin Hatch. Does anybody know what faith Orrin Hatch is from? He's a Mormon. And I guarantee if I didn't know who Orrin Hatch was, and I didn't know he was a Mormon, that was one of the most powerful testimonies I've ever heard. Folks, get ready. Get ready. Please be careful. If there's anything you're in doubt with, not that I'm the answer man or Dean is or Chris is or Danny is, but together we can fight this war. And don't read any book 
or don't listen to any radio program or watch any television show unless you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're teaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you do that for me? I want to read two more scriptures. John 1, chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And that's really saying that really anybody that believes that, now we're in such a time of lying, we can't just take their word for it. How do we test the spirits? Luke tells us in Acts 17. It says, now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. He's talking about the people from Berea, the Bereans. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were true. It doesn't matter if it's me, Chris, Dean, Danny, or Orrin Hatch. You need to examine the scriptures for yourself and make sure they're true. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, False teachers are going to come in like prophets. They're going to come like true prophets in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, false teachers are going to come in like prophets. They're going to come like true prophets in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. They're going to come in and destroy you. But they're going to claim to be true prophets. Then Jesus said, By their what? By their fruits, you know them. So you know genuine messengers and you know false messengers by their fruits. In Matthew 7, 20, Jesus also said, For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. Grapes don't grow on a thorn bush. Grapes don't grow in weeds or thistles. Grapes grow on the vine of the living Savior, Jesus Christ. How do you know a true messenger? Look at his life. God's authority is always affirmed by the fruit of the leader's life and ministry. If the fruit is bad, the tree is diseased. False teachers talk about their biblical knowledge. They spout their evangelical vocabulary. They make their endless claims. But the badness and consistencies of their life and their doctrine will manifest itself in their lives and the lives of their followers. You can hide your bad fruit for only so long. You can hide it under lights and cameras only so long. You want to know if a man is a true messenger of God? Look at the facts. Look at his life. Look at his fruit. Look at his followers. Again, the best way... To avoid being taken by a counterfeit is to understand what's real. Think of money and art. Paul defended his authenticity in the verses by giving the marks of a true man of God or the marks of genuine spiritual authority. Believers must be able to pick out the voice of a good shepherd and his genuine under-shepherds amidst the howls of Satan's wolves. Let's look at Mark number 1. Marks of genuine spiritual authority. It says in the second half of verse 7, If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. So Paul is making a statement here that he also is Christ. The false apostles' claims, and they're making claims here, plural, that they are in Christ can be understood in four different ways. One, they claim to be Christians. Two, they claim to know Jesus during his earthly life. 
Three, they claim to have an apostolic commission from him. And four, they claim to have an elevated secret knowledge of Jesus. And beware of any religions that have an elevated secret knowledge of Jesus. Because he's given us everything we need for life and what? And godliness. There's nothing missing, folks. There's no prophecies to come. All prophecies are, are here and final. Their claim that some or all of the above were true about themselves implies that they denied all of them to be true of Paul. And that's very important to this verse. Since the false teachers relied so much on themselves and the confidence in their own powers, Paul says, let them look at the evidence that I also am in Christ. That I've given as much evidence that I'm commissioned by Christ as they can produce. It might be a different kind of evidence. It's not the eloquence and rank and the gift of rapid and ready elocution, but it may be superior to what they're able to produce. Probably Paul refers here to the fact that he had seen the Lord Jesus and that he had been directly commissioned by him. The sense is that no one could could produce more proofs of being called to the ministry than Paul could. How do you know a true messenger? How do you know genuine spiritual authority? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.23, And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may be a fellow partaker of it. Paul's whole life was characterized by living, suffering, and dying for the gospel. He didn't care what other people thought of him. Now make a note here. Paul does not refute the false teacher's apostleship and their claim of being Christians. He will do that in chapter 11. So we won't cover that today. Paul merely pointed out that he too is in Christ and the evidence is overwhelming. They can make no dispute. And these false apostles, these false teachers were trying to defame Paul to say that he wasn't an apostle. Let's look at the second mark of genuine spiritual authority. Verse 8, Paul says, For even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority, I shall not be put to shame. The second mark is humility. Paul's claims for his authority normally were restrained by his humility. Paul wasn't about beating his chest and saying, look at me, I'm commissioned by the Lord. I'm an apostle. I'm a pastor. I'm a church planner. Yet he would never be ashamed of his calling in the office the Lord gave him. He's not ashamed of it. So first part of verse 8 says, for even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority... At the end of verse 8, he says, I shall not be put to shame. Acts 20, 18 through 20, this is Paul talking. And he says, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. You know, Paul, when I looked at the epistles, Paul actually boasted a lot. He really did boast a lot. But he was always boasting in the Lord or boasting in what the Lord had done. Sometime in your concordance, just look up boasting and in, the, uh, in the epistles. And you'll see that Paul always boasted in the Lord or boasted in what the Lord had done. He boasted in, he boasted in Christians all the time, but it was a boasting of thankfulness for what the Lord had done. Romans 1, 16 through 17, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
So Paul is not ashamed. He will boast. He will boast. And he'll boast all day long on things of the Lord. But he is a humble man. He'll get kicked out of town. He'll get beat to a pulp. And he'll just keep coming back for more. And he'll never stand up and say, I don't have a right to be treated this way. He is a a humble servant of the Lord. Third mark of genuine spiritual authority is a positive impact on the church. In the middle of verse 8, Paul says, The authority which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you. My authority that the Lord gave is for building you up and not destroying you. So the third mark is a positive impact on the church. The nature or purpose of Paul's authority was for the edification, not for the destruction of the body. It requires much more skill to build than to destroy. You know, I am, I'm not a real handy guy, but if there's demolition work, I can do it. If there's a wall that needs to be torn down or something needs to be broken up, I can do that. And it doesn't take much skill. And that's what Paul's saying here, too, is it takes a lot more skill. It takes a lot more love, compassion to build up than it does to destroy. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2 says, Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. It's love that builds up. Knowledge can build up too, but without love, it won't build up at all. The Corinthians interpreted Paul's love and meekness as a sign of weakness. The difference between Paul and the Judaizers was this. Paul uses authority to build up the church, while the Judaizers used the church to build up their authority. This is always the difference between a good leader and a bad. So look, is the church being built and strengthened? Is the church being built and strengthened? And that's what we should all ask. In this church and every other church, is it being built and strengthened, or is it being torn down by the leadership? A true man of God always strives to build up. The Lord gave Paul and every other pastor this authority for building you up. And not for what? Not for destroying. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be discipline. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have times like we had with, uh, with Dave Lawton up front. And God's given us really clear instructions. As hard as it is, when there is, when there is an obvious, blatant practice of unrepentant sin as a body of Christ... We need to lovingly administer discipline. And even that is for the building up of the church, not the destroying. Amen? As hard as that is. False teachers bring confusion. They're divisive. They bring destructive effects. Their influence in the church is contrary to the purposes of Christ who said, I will build my church. I want to just look at a couple of verses that really examine what the pastor's job is, what the calling is of the pastor. Ephesians 4 says, And he gave some as apostles and prophets and some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. That's it. That's the job description for leaders in the church. Equip, serve, and build up. Colossians 1, 28-29 And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. A goal of a pastor, a goal of a spiritual leader should be able to bring people up, to bring people complete in Christ. That's our goal. 
So how do you know a true man of God? First of all, you know him because of an intimate relationship with Christ. Secondly, by his humility. Third, by the positive and fruitful impact on the church, which is unified and strengthened in the truth. Number four, Mark, compassion for his people. Marks of genuine spiritual authority. The fourth is compassion for his people. Verse 9, For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. See, the, the, the false teacher said, Paul, you're too bold and scary in your letters. You're mean. You're loveless. And Paul says, I don't want to be that way. I don't want to terrify you with my letters. They're not meant to terrify you. They accuse of an abusive leader in his writing. Paul's goal, however, was not to terrify them, but to bring them to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. Danny taught on this a few months ago, and I love this verse. It says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful. See, Paul takes no pleasure at all in people's pain. He takes no pleasure at all in having to admonish somebody. He says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. That's what he rejoices in, is in repentance and people turning from their sin. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer a loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Last two marks quickly. We're running out of time. The fifth mark is Paul lived before an audience of one. I couldn't think of anything else to call it but that. I love it. Living before an audience of one. Isn't that what we all want to do? I really don't want to live my life before anybody. No offense, before you all, before my wife, my kids. I want to live, I want to live before an audience of one. And living according to the, to the instructions that he's given me. And you know what? Everything else will take care of itself. You know, they accused Paul of being a wimp in person, but being really bold when he's 600 miles away. They accused Paul of lacking the presence, charisma, and personality of a truly great leader. And in a culture that highly valued skillful rhetoric and eloquent speech, Paul's contemptible speech was also taken as evidence that he was a weak, ineffective leader. Paul didn't care what others thought about him. It was not a people pleaser. He truly lived before an audience of one like the psalmist who said in Psalm 26, Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. You're my defender. Paul epitomized this saying, living before an audience of one in 1 Thessalonians 2. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing to men, but God who examines our hearts. A mature leader does not use authority to, de- to demand respect because he will command respect by his actions. And this has been a lifelong lesson for me, even as a dad. You know, I can demand respect all day long. Husbands and some of the guys that are in our community group, we've been learning about that the wives are to respect husbands, right? 
And we know that that's a command. But guys, we can't demand it. Why don't we start commanding it? Why don't we command their respect by the way we act and the way we love them? Does that, make, does that make sense? And stop demanding respect. By our actions, they'll want to respect us. This is a great quote by Warren Worsby. I don't think I put it up on a slide. Here's his quote. Mature leaders suffer while they wait to act. Mature leaders suffer while they wait to act. Remember the definition of meekness? Power under control. Mature leaders suffer while they wait to act, while immature leaders act impetuously and make others suffer. That is convicting. Sixth mark, integrity. Verse 11, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. Paul is pointing out that there's no contradiction between his preaching and the way he lives. There's no contradiction at all. Paul's life was totally consistent. He was bold in his letters because he needed to be bold in his letters. He was meek and gentle in person because he needed to be meek and gentle in person. By golly, if he needs to be bold in person, he'll be bold. If he wants to write gently, he'll write gently. Paul is a matter of integrity. Get this in Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas are in some town, I forget what town they're in, and the Gentiles saw them heal somebody. And they want to deify Paul. They want to make Paul a god. Talk about something that kind of feeds your ego a little bit. But Paul and his integrity, it looks like this. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. With the crowds. They wanted to deify. They wanted to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and they rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you. We just, we've just, we're just called to preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. I'm not sure what I would do. I don't really have to worry about it. But if someone were to exalt me in that way, I think, I'd take a seat and just want to listen for a little bit. Bring the firewood. So the six marks in review of genuine spiritual authority, intimate relationship with Jesus, humility, positive impact on the church, live before an audience of one, and integrity. Father, we just praise you. God, I just uh, thank you for your, just your amazing word. Thank you for leaving your word with us. Thank you for the instruction that it gives us. God, please don't ever let us just be hearers of the word, whether it be in our morning devotional time, our evening time as families, Sunday morning. God, don't let us be, don't let us just be hearers of the word. Don't let us just be acquirers of knowledge. Lord, cause, cause us to be doers, to go out, to go out and serve and to make known the manifold grace of God the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we just desire to know you in a more intimate way. 
And God, as we slide into this time of communion, as we're running just a little bit late, Father, I just pray that, that you would just remind us deeply by the power of your Spirit. Remind us of what it is that you saved us from and what it is that you've saved us to.